0: Well, today in our series, Turning North, our turn ye northward, we're talking about the second of the five tenets of a progressive Christian church. And that tenet uh, is radical inclusivity, something that is very important to us here at Grace Point. Radical inclusivity. This has been an issue. As long as human beings... Have been human beings. As long as Homo sapiens have been on the planet, the idea of inclusion and exclusion has raged. Even prelingual, our species has concerned itself with who's in and who's out. Anthropologically, there is a long study that could be done on the psychology and the sociology of what it means to be excluded and why we exclude. This concept has only been exacerbated as human beings begin to develop ideas of creator, holy other, what we refer to as a divine being or God. Religion has heightened and complicated this matter of inclusion and exclusion. We have been wrestling as long as we have been with the idea of who belongs to God and who doesn't belong to God. Who is on God's side and whose side is God on? Our religion, the Judeo-Christian faith, is no exception to this. We were born. We were born out of a group of people. A group of people who heard a call. The Abrahamic call vested deep in the roots of our faith. A call to get up and get out of a little territory north of the Persian Gulf, a land called Ur of the Chaldees. The progenitor of our faith, Abraham, and his father, Terah, heard this call. God told them if they would get up and they would get out, he would take them to a country and he would show them a land. He told them that he would bless them and all of their goings. He told them that he would bless those that blessed them. And they said that they heard him say, I would curse those who curse you. He did say to them that all the nations of the earth would ultimately be blessed by them. This would be their calling. Their calling is that they would be blessed, that they might be a blessing. And yet, as that group of people developed their faith, developed their spiritual journey, developed this nation of sorts... They wrestled with this concept of blessing all the nations of the earth. They wrestled with this concept of being the people of God. What did it mean to them to be the people of God? Somewhere along the line, they began to understand that to be the people of God meant that there were people who were not the people of God. It was an assumption they made that if we are the people of God that means that there are people outside the bounds of that definition who are not the people of God those lines through the centuries thickened enemies of the people of Israel enemies of the people of God became not the people of God even people of the devil people of the enemy wars Strivings, subjugation, slavery, power struggles. This was our people's story from the earliest days. Who was in, who was out? Whose side was God on? It doesn't take a very careful reading of the Hebrew scriptures to read this story, to see this story clearly. I've always struggled with those texts. Those texts that have God acting like the commander of Isis, commanding his people to do genocides, pogroms on other groups of people. My friend Greg Boyd, a biblical scholar, also has always wrestled with those texts. Greg said now he looks at those texts and understands them to be literary crucifixions. Jesus said, the Hebrew scriptures are they which testify of me. Greg reminds us that Jesus showed us the face of God in the laying down of his life. And in that crucifixion, Jesus is all martyrs who die for causes. Jesus bore the sins of the people. Sins that he didn't commit, he bore. And Greg said, that's exactly how the Hebrew scriptures depict Jesus, point to Jesus. Because they show God bearing sins that God did not commit. That nuanced way of reading the text may be difficult for some. But it's the only way I can possibly read text like number 34, Numbers 34. Where God commands the people to kill all of the enemy. And when the people have pangs of conscience and can't kill all of the enemy. They come back and are excoriated by God sent back to kill the women the children and the elderly only to hear God back off of his initial command and say you don't have to kill them all you can reserve the little young girls who are virgins for yourself how do we read text like that how do we possibly understand that these are texts which testify of Jesus who pulled children into his lap and told us that no one should ever harm a child. This Jesus was the face of a God who would allow his children to enslave young virgin girls for their own use. We begin to understand that those texts were not indicating who God was, they were indicating more who the writers were who wrote about God. These were our literary crucifixions. This is what religion oft does, and our text is no—our uh, our text is no exception to that rule. We project onto God our own vitriol. We project onto God our own savagery. We project onto God our own violence. We project onto God our own hatred. Because how better to vindicate those ways that we want to live but to say that's how God is. And if you say it long enough and write it long enough, no wonder Jesus would look back as one who bore the sins of people. The same way King and Gandhi bore sins scapegoats who take the blows of hatred, bear it, and metabolize it in their own love and return it to people redemptively. That's what martyrs do. They bear sins that they don't commit. We project it onto God our own need for some to be in and some to be out. We projected onto God our own Dimness of candle that desperately blows out everybody else's because ours doesn't feel bright enough. We projected onto God our own insecurities, our own frailties, psychic frailties. We needed to believe, we needed to believe that we were the end. And in order to be the end, there has to be an out. And then Jesus came into the midst of that. Interestingly, it doesn't take a very careful study of the New Testament text to show Jesus ministering specifically at times to six or seven groups of people. The same six or seven groups of people who had ultimately found themselves excluded from the temple and the religious life of Jesus' people. The very people that were put outside of the temple, those were the people that Jesus went to again and again and again. Onto a mountain in Samaria, a a piece of property between Galilee and Judea, between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee, an outpost of Judaism. That Samaritan land was filled with a group of half-breed Jewish people that had stayed home during the journeys to Mesopotamia, Babylon, Persia, Assyria when the children of Israel had been taken out of their land in the fifth and sixth and seventh centuries before Jesus the best were always taken into slavery, the worst, the riff were left they weren't even good enough to take into slavery, these were the people who stayed home detached from the religious priestly class they developed heretical a heretical form of Judaism and when the Jewish people ultimately came back with their own faith refined in captivity they came back to find this heretical group of people that they continually held in disdain and they held them so in disdain that in in common Jewish life to move from Judea to Galilee, a straight shot would have been right through the middle of Samaria. But most often, good Jewish people would cross over the Jordan River into the Transjordan River and go hours, even days, out of their way so as not to sully their feet with the soil of Samaria. And yet Jesus' famed Sermon on the Mount was probably taught right in the middle of Samaria. He walked right into that place set up on a mountain and looked out at a group of people no doubt with religious leaders who were there to evangelize the people and to keep them in check Jesus walked right out onto that mountain and sat down and said blessed are you blessed are you not if you have doctrinal acuity and theological accuracy but he looked at a group of people very likely a group of Samaritan people People like the woman at the well, who when Jesus even offered her a cup of water, she was shocked. How could a good Jewish man offer a Samaritan woman a cup of water? How could you even engage me? And to a group of people just like that, Jesus sat down within earshot of the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people. Jesus sat down and said, Blessed are you. Blessed are you if you're hungry. Blessed are you if life has left you thirsty. Blessed are you if you long for peace. Blessed are you if you are humbled and meek and brought low by this world. Blessed are you. And if that wasn't scandalous enough, he walked down off of that mountain. And the first person he saw at the base of that sermonic mount, the first person he saw was a leper. A person ceremonially ceremonially unclean. And Jesus, without a word, walks straightway to that person and touches their face. (laughs) And they breathe deep because human touch was something they hadn't known for weeks, months, perhaps years. He touched them. And from that moment, the scandal, the scandal moved feverishly toward a pitch that would ultimately get him crucified always and ever he was sitting down with riffraff and elevating elevating those who were marginalized tax collectors those those jewish sellouts who had sold their jewish soul to align with the roman government to collect taxes for the roman government and even were given privilege by the roman government to pat a little bit and line their own pockets that most hated group and jesus was always about the business of going to them walking up to trees and Telling little tax collectors like Zacchaeus, come down, salvation has come to your house today. And as they tried to award him the key to the city, Jesus went past it all straightway into the home of a hated man. One day, the scripture said, Jesus was sitting down with a group of people who were notorious for their lives. Who they were, whether it was a mafia or prostitutes or pimps or the drug dealer of their day, whoever these people were. It was very clear they were, bottom of the, they were the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the spiritual caste in Israel. And the scripture says that the religious leaders, assuming that Jesus was, you know, becoming a well-reputed rabbi, one of their own, they went to him even in the face of those people and, and made it very plain to him that he shouldn't be tainting himself with this kind of proximity to this kind of people. And Jesus, right there with the people, looked at the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and said, Would you mind if I told you a story or three? And as the tax collectors and the sinners sat near him, perhaps embarrassed, perhaps blushing at this public rebuke that they had endured, Jesus told a story to these religious leaders. The first story was, He said, There was a woman who had ten coins and she lost one of them and knowing that the nine coins were safe she put them away and she worked all day long sweeping the corners of her house until she found that coin and oh the celebration of that lost coin being found Jesus said there was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one night after a long, stormy, really disastrous night for a shepherd and the sheep, he finally got them back to the barn and and as he got them in the barn, he counted. Now now remember, sitting there are a group of people who were enjoying dinner with Jesus only to have this elite cast come up and humiliate them by saying to Jesus, hey, you belong with us. You don't belong with these people. Speaking of them in the third person, these excluded, bad people who are obviously not the people of God. And Jesus continues with the story and the hearing of both of these groups. And he says, when the shepherd secured all of his sheep, he, he began counting and as is the heart of a good shepherd ninety-nine percent was not satisfactory he counted ninety-nine counted again maybe he made a mistake And two or three counts in he realized ninety-nine are here and I've lost one and he left the ninety-nine warm in the fold and he went out and he began looking and he looked and he looked and he looked until he found that one lost sheep oh how he rejoiced only then could he sleep when 100% were secure and he said a third story there was a man who had two sons and the younger of those two sons never really understood home never really understood his relationship with his father he was the father's child the father loved him sore but he never understood that and one day terribly misunderstanding who he was and whose he was he went to his father and said please give me everything that you owe me I gotta get out of here This place is suffocating me. And not understanding who he was, he took what the father gave him. The father actually not only gave his younger son what was due him, but he went ahead and divided up the inheritance as it stood presently. And he gave gave the elder brother his money as well, his inheritance as well. And the younger brother chose to go off and he went off and he lived a really hard life and it was really hard on him. Interesting thing about the way Jesus told the story. Jesus didn't say he went off and he got into prostitutes and drugs and Jesus didn't say any of that. There's nothing in the story about specifically what the kid did. Except the way Jesus tells the story. He doesn't say the prodigal did all of these awful things he said this awful stuff happened to the prodigal he lost all of his money and he ended up working literally enslaved for a man and the guy that he was working for was so cruel that when the boy was feeding the man's pigs the boy was starving to death and he asked the guy he was working for Jesus said could I at least eat the husk of the corn I'm feeding the pigs could I just Could it just have the waste that the pigs are eating? And the man said, no, you're you're not worth pig food. That's what Jesus said. It's interesting. We never tell the story of the prodigal that way. We always talk about all the sinful stuff that the prodigal did. That's not what Jesus said. And it's very obvious. I mean, let's be candid. It's very obvious that when Jesus said there were two sons, one was an elder, an older, a superior, who stayed home, and the other one went off and and really lost his way and lost his life. You got to know that the Pharisees put the story together, and they knew who they were in the story, and they knew that the prostitutes, And the pimps who were sitting there, the lowlifes who were sitting there with Jesus, they knew who they were. They knew they were the ones who had ended up a long, long way from home. And Jesus said that younger boy one day wanted to come home. And he came home. And just like the woman who found the coin and just like the man who found the sheep, of course the father was happy and he threw a party because that's what grace does grace forgets everything and just throws a party and I'm sure at that point the Pharisees were satisfied the story was done but really for Jesus the story had only begun Jesus said and as the party was going on this lost coin had obviously been found this lost sheep had been found this lost son had been found Jesus said a strange thing happened. The father realized that he had lost something. And the story takes a dramatic turn. And to clue you in ahead, as the story goes, the prodigal son that went away was not the lost boy. He was never lost. The father always knew where he was, and the father never went looking for him good parents sometime know that you got to let them go I always say the father not only believed in that prodigal journey he believed in it so much he financed the trip sometime you let them go the prodigal that was out in the hog pen wasn't the lost coin and he wasn't the lost sheep because the lost coin and the lost sheep they were lost and the woman And and, and the woman and the shepherd had to go looking for them. Well, where is the lost thing, if it's not the prodigal in the story of the prodigal son? Well, that's the beauty of this story, and that's the mastery of Jesus storytelling. Jesus said the father looked around at the party and said, "Where is my coin? Where is my sheep? Where is my boy?" And of course, the Pharisees at that point would have thought, well, he's right there. He's that filthy kid that came home. Jesus said, no. The father said, where's the elder brother? I've lost somebody. And one of the servants said, he's sitting up on the hillside above a barn. He's angry. And the father, Jesus said, walked up that hill and he sat down beside that kid And the kid didn't even acknowledge the presence of his father. He just sat glassy-eyed, his jaw clenched, looking down at the fire and the lamb that was being cooked and the party that was being thrown. And the father says to that older brother, the one who never went off, never lived the debauched life, The father says to that lost son, where are you, boy? And without blinking, the boy says, you have never thrown a party for me. I always knew you loved him more. He was the coat of many color kids. And Jesus gets to the heart of the Pharisee and the heart of the spirit of exclusion and the heart of where condescension comes from. Jesus gets to the very heart of it. Jesus is telling those hard-cast exclusionary Pharisees, I know why you act this way. I know why you have to blow other people's candles out. I know why you have to exclude people. It's because you yourself have never felt the powerful grace of true inclusion. And Jesus said that father went looking for the true lost child... For the true lost child was the one who was lost in the temple, the one who was lost in the church, the one who never went away, the one who stayed home and yet was the most lost. The prodigal wasn't the most lost because he woke up in a hog pen and said, I have a father somewhere who loves me. And the elder never knew that. After all I've done, staying clean and staying home, you have never thrown me a party. And Jesus preaches the gospel that day to the lost children who had never heard it and had never received it. It wasn't the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They were happy to be with Jesus. They understood the heart of inclusion. The Bible says that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Not a friend to sinners. Of course he was a friend to sinners. He was a friend of sinners. That means when the sinners were talking, they talked about their friend, Jesus. The amazing thing wasn't that Jesus was comfortable with sinners. The amazing thing was sinners were comfortable with Jesus. There's somebody who knows how to do religion and spirituality. Somebody that makes no one feel uncomfortable. And Jesus now shares the gospel with the Pharisees because they were the ones who needed it most desperately. And Jesus looked at them now, away from the tax collectors and the prostitute, Jesus looked at them, and now his eyes must have been glistening as he looked at them and said, and the father looked at that elder brother and said, Son, Son, everything I've ever had has been yours and your whole life you have lived here beneath the privilege of your belovedness I now understand you never knew my love Jesus told the Pharisees a story of lost things and that day he told them they were the ones who were most lost And it's that sense of lostness, that sense of the dimly lit candle in my own soul that thrust me powerfully into this process of blowing out other people's candles, making sure other people's lives are diminished, making sure that my own bullied soul is not the most bullied, but making sure that there are others lower than me. Jesus told another story to religious leaders because his heart was always consumed with this matter. Not just of exclusion and inclusion, but where does it come from? What are the roots in the soul of a human being that make them do this to another person? Why do people bomb homes, not caring if there are children inside? How... How do we so diminish and conspire in the diminishment of other people? Why, Jesus said, do we do this to one another? Jesus said to this group of religious leaders one day, perhaps the same group of people, he said there was a man that owed a small debt to the king and he could not get it paid from his Serf proletariat life he just was so far down that he could not make his payment his kingdom payment to the king and he went before the king and the king told him i'm going to throw you in jail and you're never going to get out and the man with a wife and kids fell down on his knees and said please 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 i can't pay please for my kids for my family please give me mercy and the king had a pang of conscience and he looked at the man, Roy, and he said, Done. You're forgiven. The few hundred dollars you owe, it's done. And Jesus said, Would you believe that that guy got up and he went out? And he found somebody who owed him money. And I've already told the story wrong because it wasn't a few hundred dollars that. The man owed the king. It was millions of dollars. Incapable of paying the millions of dollars, relieved of the debt now, he went out. And Jesus said, you you won't believe this, but this guy who had just been forgiven this million dollar debt, he went out and he found a guy who owed him $18. And he put his foot on the neck of that man, grabbed him by the collar and said, you're going to pay me. At which point the man fell down and sang the same song that the man that was now holding him sang a few hours earlier to the king. And the man said, I can't pay you. I don't have the $20 to pay. Mercy. And Jesus said, would you believe that he threw him into jail? After being forgiven millions of dollars, he could not find it in his heart to forgive a fellow for 20 Jesus left the story there as he often did for us to percolate on, and I have percolated on that story for many years and I have wondered because Jesus didn't give the punchline. And I think the reason he didn't give the punchline is I I think Jesus understands that if we think about it carefully, it's pretty plain what the punchline is. Jesus was making it very clear. That when the man heard the king say, You are forgiven and you don't owe me another dime, he really didn't believe it because he had never experienced forgiveness that clean, that pure, that whole. Most of the time, the forgiveness that we experience from people comes with strings and really isn't forgiveness. They tell us that we don't have to pay them the debt, but then they set us up on this indentured plan of high interest payments the rest of our life where we always have this awkward relationship and we always know we're less than them. And they always look at us like we know that they know that we know that they're on top because they were the one who forgave us. So much of human forgiveness is that way it's the forgiveness with strings, it's the forgiveness that never allows full relief. And when the guy backed out of there, he thought to himself, before he changes his mind, i got to go get as much money as I can to have the first payment because I know it's coming. The only reason that we could possibly, having been forgiven that much, not be able to forgive is we must not have believed we were forgiven. This is the story that Jesus was telling over and over and over and over again. We exclude people because we feel excluded. We wrestle at the table of the Lord for space because we believe in the scarcity model of grace, that there can't possibly be enough room at God's table. And amazingly, I could tell you 10 other stories from the life of Jesus, amazingly, The early church, named after Jesus, took that same struggle right out of the chute into our new faith. Acts, the second chapter, said the Spirit of God overwhelmingly fell on a group of people. They were so enthused and they were so enthralled that they huddled together. They studied the apostles' doctrine. They bathed in the Spirit of God they were amazed at the grace of God in their life. And they immediately concluded that 99.9% of the earth's population had no access to that same grace. These people were called Gentiles. Everybody else, except for the Jewish family, still wrestling with that same struggle that was in the heart of Judaism. Are we the people of God? And if we are the people of God, does that mean everybody else isn't the people of God? In order to be in, does that mean somebody's gotta be out? Does somebody have to be a loser for me to be a winner? Is that the only way that it works? And the early church wrestled with this issue. Talk about exclusion problems. Right out of the chute, we decided that 99% of the earth's population had no access to the gospel unless they changed their identity or the identity of their natural birth. If they converted to Judaism, then they could have access to the gospel, but simply based on the way they were born, they had no access to God's love. And the Spirit began to do in the church exactly what Jesus had done, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen. The Spirit would pick up where I left off. And the guy who preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter, and said, For the promise is unto you and your children. Did you hear what he said? The promises unto you. What we just received, the promises unto you and your children. And all those that are afar off are the lineage of Abraham. Even in the first proclamation of the Christian gospel, there was an exclusivistic tone. I can't tell you how many times I have positively quoted for the promises unto you and your children and missed what he was saying. This is just for our family, just for people in our group who have our bloodline. And the guy who preached that a few months later is on a rooftop. And he's asleep and God gives him a vision of a sheet lowered down from heaven and in that sheet is all manner of unclean animals. Animals that are not kosher, animals that are unclean. And as he peers over into that sheet in his vision and is appalled at these unclean animals, (laughs) God says, kill them and eat them. Kill them and eat them. And Peter says to God, I can't because they're unclean. I would love to hear the full detail of that conversation. I can't because they're unclean. And God says, How do you know that? And Peter says, Because scripture said. Can you imagine? He's quoting the Bible to God. Three times that happens. Three times. Peter stands up to God and says, you need to read your Bible because it plainly says. Don't you love it when people say the Bible's plain? Peter says to God, the Bible's plain. And God said, I want to tell you why I did that. I did that because there's a Gentile house not far from here and this guy loves God so much that his prayers have built a memorial. I would like for you to go share the gospel And Peter said, I can't share the gospel. Why? Because those people are intrinsically incapable of hearing the gospel just based on their natural birth. And God says, try it. And as Peter preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell from heaven. The Spirit of God fell from heaven. And the Bible says, Peter the guy who walked on water the preacher on the day of Pentecost was amazed as he saw a group of people included by God's spirit that he could not include and Peter looked around this is an astonishing text Peter looked around and he said if God has done this for them can we forbid them baptism any longer when Peter walked into that house he looked at a group of people and if that group of people would have said we believe we are followers like you would you baptize us Peter would have said no I will not dirty our baptismal tank with your soul But now they were baptized in the spirit and Peter said, how do we forbid our baptism to those God has baptized? And I'll close there, but there's so much more in this story to tell of how God had to continue to work in the life of the church to get the church's heart to open to recognize that the gospel, the good news of God's love is for absolutely everybody. I do not believe in the first 2,000 years of the Christian church we have satisfactorily followed that trajectory all the way through. I think the mad precipitous slope of those early days, the inclusion that God was projecting through His Spirit, I, I think we very soon in the early days of the church tapered that spirit of inclusion off we tapered it down we narrowed our borders we pulled in and we did not follow that completely through this church as we go to the Lord's Supper now and our brothers and sisters who are going to tender that for you if you guys would go to your Places we're going to receive the Lord's Supper by intention and we're going to come forward and receive it together, stand in line and look at one another and be with one another. This church is exploring the heart of God on this matter of who is in and who is out. And it is dawning on us as we live together and as we explore this together and as we pursue the heart of God on this matter, it is dawning on us more and more and more that with God there is no such thing as out. There never has been. We are healing from our religious journeys. We are elder brothers who are setting up on hillsides trying to figure out how we could ever be a part of a grace party thrown for people that we haven't liked, for people that we could not imagine deserved a fatted calf. And most of us, as we are wrestling through these these matters of how to forgive and how to embrace and how to open up our borders and to allow other people in, how to look at little boys in Aleppo and realize that it's not because he's under the age of accountability that he is my brother, but he is my brother and so is his father and mother. We are, the Christian church is in a pivotal place these days. We are in a precarious place these days. We are not prodigals who have awakened in hog pens and wanted to come home. The Christian church these days is the lost elder brother setting up on a hillside, wrestling with this matter of exclusion and inclusion. From the Catholic church to the Protestant church, from women in priesthood to divorcees allowed back into the church, the LGBT inclusion is just a tip Of the iceberg and while we're trying to move on from that because we don't want to continue to exploit and patronize brothers and sisters we have only begun to fight on these matters we have only begun and perhaps fight is the wrong word but the Christian church is not a prodigal who has come home the Christian church is an elder brother setting up on a hillside. And we're either going to have to figure out if we're going to join the party with God or if we are going to exclude ourselves into oblivion. And as for me and my house, and I believe as for this house, we are healing elder brothers and sisters who are accepting the grace of God for our own life, embracing our own belovedness, And we are headed down the hill to the party where all of God's children are experiencing grace. And that's why a year ago we allowed a scholar, an Islamic scholar to stand in this pulpit and appeal for peace and apologize for extremes, and beg us to see her and her people differently. That's why my friend A.J. Levine, a beautiful Jewish person, will come and speak to us at the beginning of our Advent season about the Jewish roots of our faith. We are exploring the heart of God, and I believe we're on the right track. Can you say amen? We open our hearts, sweet Spirit of God, remembering, remembering that the only text we have in the epistles about the Lord's Supper is a text written to the church at Corinth and the Apostle Paul explaining to them That they were taking the Lord's Supper all wrong, because they were mistreating the poor and the marginalized in the church. Somehow, in the Lord's Supper and the love feast, the rich were getting drunk and were being gluttonous, while the poor in the church did not have enough to eat. And the Apostle Paul explained to the church that they might as well shut their doors and go home because they're worse off after they come to church than they were before It's the only text we have sweet Christ about the Lord's Supper A group of people excluding another group of people based on economics When are we ever going to get this right? This is a good place to start as we take the body of Jesus, the body of Christ, which is the body of those around us, the body of a little boy broken. We realize that you're not a narcissist, God, and this is not our moment to reflect back on a hill far away 2,000 years ago But the broken body of Christ is a five-year-old pulled from the rubble sitting alone in shock in the back of an ambulance. This is the broken body of Christ. It is in that spirit of full inclusion that we take your body today in bread until we are all one until the beloved community comes full thank you for a spirit of radical inclusivity continue to heal our elder brother and sister hearts until we know how forgiven we are and that the kingdom has always been ours we pray all of this now in Christ's name in the early days of the Christian church There were some that broke away from our faith because they believed eating the body and drinking the blood was this strange form of religious cannibalism or vampirism. We were vampires and cannibals. I understand that, and there's something about the Lord's Supper, drinking someone's blood and eating somebody's flesh that just strikes intuitively a wrong chord in me and always has. Until until I think about who this body is and who this blood belongs to standing under a cross 2,000 years ago and needing a tortured son's blood to drip down on my soul has never settled in my spirit but this week when I watched that little boy in shock reach up and feel the moisture and he looked at his blood this is blood that I can drink not physically of course how macabre is that but this is blood the blood of 4800 children in Aleppo alone who have died this is blood These are the broken bodies of Christ Jesus, or rather Paul said to the church as they excluded one another from the Lord's Supper in Corinth He said, do you not know that you are the Lord's body? Do you not know that he's not asking you to reflect back on a hill far away? He's asking you to see one another this is the blood we drink. This is the body we take. And we open our hearts a final time today to that spirit the radical spirit of inclusion, the heart of God for this earth. And we pray. That our own hearts are healed, that we might come down from that lofty place and join the party of grace that is for all. May we all see that that wars may end. May we all see that that abuse may die. Give us the vision of the beloved community, sweet Christ we pray. And God's people said, in the power of inclusion and in God's grace go. God bless you. We'll see you in the house of the Lord next week.